We welcome all of you to the Someone to Tell It To podcast today. We're just always so glad that you can join us. And I know we say it all the time, but we, I mean, we love these conversations. And this conversation is one that's very thought-provoking, it, 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 challenging. And as, as our guest today uh, says that it's about holding up a mirror mm-hmm. to ourselves and recognizing the things that maybe we don't easily recognize the blind spots, the blind spots that we have, the biases that we carry with us, the um, tendency to to not think about and look around, you know, about how other people experience their lives, their history, and this is a this is a good episode that, that presents some some challenging ideas, and um, we hope you like it and that. It'll be something that will speak to you and cause you to think and reflect um, as you as you look at the at the world and and a, and a larger picture of everyday life. So we'll tell you a little bit about our guest. Uh, again, his name is Sharif Al Meki, and he's been an educator since 1993. And prior to becoming a director of the Center for Black Educator Development in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He served as principal, assistant principal, lead teacher for Art and Music Academy, gifted Spanish teacher, sixth grade science teacher, and eighth grade literature social studies teacher. Sharif grew up in Philadelphia, and then he became the director of the Center for Black Educator Development in 2019. Under the umbrella of the Fellowship Black Male Educators for Social Justice, a group Sharif helped create in 2014, The Center for Black Educator Development will expand on efforts to recruit and maintain black male and female educators, both locally and nationally. And we'll just add that we're going to add some more bio about Sharif in our uh, show notes today. So we hope you enjoy this program. We use Buzzsprout to create this podcast. And as a small nonprofit team, we really appreciate how easy they make it to get our guests' stories out into the world. With Buzzsprout, you get a beautiful podcast website, audio players to embed into other sites, detailed analytics, tools to promote your episodes, and so much more. Use the link in the show notes to get a $20 Amazon gift card when you sign up for a paid plan and to support our show. As the co-founders of Someone to Tell To, we often find ourselves traveling around between meetings and listening sessions, and we often don't really have time for the little things like grocery shopping. I'm sure many of you have had that experience when at the end of a long workday, you'd rather do anything else than shop for groceries. That's why we're happy to give our listeners the chance to get free delivery on your first Instacart order over $35. You'll get the products you love from your local stores in as fast as one hour. There's nothing quite like sitting down at the end of the day to be present for your family over a home-cooked meal. And takeout just doesn't feel the same. So if you find yourself needing groceries and considering getting takeout instead, get hand-selected products delivered straight to your door. Get free shipping on orders over $35 by using the link in the show notes. Sharif, it's so nice to have you on the program today. Uh, We're really looking forward to having this conversation with you. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. One of the things that we love to do is uh, when we start a conversation like this is just simply ask each of our guests to uh, respond to this simple question, or maybe it's not so simple, but um, we'd love for you to just tell us about yourself. Sure. Yeah, I I don't think... Any of your guests probably think that's a simple question because we're, we're such a complex uh, ball of experiences and um and and journeys. But uh, you know, I was, I was born and raised in in West Philadelphia. Um, you know, one of my schoolmates used to uh, sing about that in West Philadelphia, born and raised. Y'all know the rest of that, oh, yeah. you know. So, well, uh, well. <laughs> um, you know, I, I had two parents who were you know activists, uh, really fighting for educational justice, racial justice, social justice at large. Um, They um, met and married while they were in the Black Panther Party in the West Philly branch. Um, 
they were super focused on us receiving an education that was, um, you know, not anti-Black, uh, but anti-racist. Uh, and uh, the school, I, I think, was an integral part of who I am today. You know, so it was a pre-K to sixth grade school. Um, ended up graduating there. We spent time overseas in Iran, came back, went to Overbrook, um, you know, same school as uh, Will Smith and, and others. And, um, you know, eventually became an educator. Uh, my mother was an educator and um, didn't think of that at the time. But over, over my, you know, my adulthood, as I was growing up, I think they really planted the seeds about how important education was. Um, not just education and like theory. Oh, hey, we got to be educated. Yes, that. But in particular, um, the experiences I had with my teachers, I think they planted seeds that one day I would become one. Um, and so I, I think between school and the community and my family, those three things uh, merged in a, in a uh, created a tapestry of, of my life um, that I think still impacts me um, 50 years later. There's so much there. We'll, we'll look forward to unpacking uh, in our conversation today with you. As we spent some time just getting to know you and your work and some of the other interviews you've had, we heard you use this phrase, which we love, is just to know thyself. And much of your work has been spent around helping children to, or those who work with children, to listen to themselves and, and just to grow in wisdom. What does that phrase mean to you, to know thyself? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... One, to know thyself for me means uh, it should it should generate a level of humility because the, the more you know about yourself, the more you have to learn, right? Because you may know yourself in this context, but in the new context, you may have to grow and change and evolve uh, to meet that time, to meet that period, to meet that, that, um, that experience um, and do it well. Uh, and, and I think so to know thyself means to be on this ongoing journey. Of, of learning, of thinking, of listening, right? Because we can't just, you know, I don't think that we can just know ourselves only by looking inwardly. I think at some point you also have to know yourself by understanding how you're showing up for other people, how they're experiencing you. Because you may have, you know, um, delusional uh, grandeur thoughts about yourself and like, yeah, I know me, but other people may give you feedback that's really important. It may be the mirror that you may be hiding. Um, sometimes we lie to ourselves. And so I think it's a combination of, of the humility to learn, but also the culture of humility to, um, you know, learn from others, others who don't have the same, you know, voice experience perspective um, that, that we do. So I, I think it's a, a delicate balance of, having the confidence, but also having the humility. So we call it courageous humility. Being courageous, not, you know, not listening to people who are telling you what you absolutely are not, uh, yet at the same time, trying to understand how you interact with the world, how, uh, what the past has looked like, what the future could look like, but most importantly, what are you doing right there in the moment? And so I, th I think knowing thyself is, is a, a complex journey and I think it's best done in community with others. I don't think it's one of those, well, I'll just be a hermit, you know, and shut myself off from everyone else, not be communal, and I'll just know myself. Um, I think there's times to be silent, to be by yourself, to, be, to wrestle with your own thoughts, emotions, feelings. Uh, and there's time where you have to be in a communal space to know yourself better. Um, so I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's complex, but it's totally doable courageous humility i love that phrase uh that, that, that that's really neat um, as you as you think about that phrase and you talk about community kind of rallying around people to help us to know ourselves who are some people uh in your your journey who've done that for you oh wow i mean you know outside of my parents um who i, I think just raised us to you know one um, my mother in particular was just very steadfast in, in making sure that we did not consume, you know, one television. Like as a, as a child, we watched very little television. And of course, as a child, I didn't understand that at all. I disagreed with it vehemently. Um, but she, she, <laughs> uh, 
she was really understanding of this idea that the media will try to tell you who you are, um, who your people are, where you came from, what your contributions um, were or were not. Um, and she wanted to make sure that we were had a healthy mindset about us, about our people, about our community. And she said one of the ways that that gets undermined of like a positive racial identity, uh, sense of self-worth and 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 other things was through what she used to call the boob tube. Like that, that would uh, permeate, um, you know, homes and invite messages um, into the home that, that she said was not conducive to a healthy black child's um, mindset and psyche. And, you know, as I got older, I understood exactly, you know, as I got more you know, independence and, and older and more experienced. So I understood exactly, you know, what she was talking about. So, and I would also say the teachers at Netamusasa, they also, you know, the, the high level of expectations that they had for us also centered us as, as far as like what we were able to accomplish, right? It's one thing to say, oh, you know, have rhetoric about, oh, you can accomplish anything, but then teaching at such a low level, teaching, multiple grades below what you're actually capable of or not having high expectations for what you're able to accomplish. When you have this positive affirming language and ethos and and uh, ecosystem and you're you're given high expectations together, that can be pretty powerful. And so I would say starting off with, uh, you know, those teachers um, and my family uh, were just constantly, you know, uh, building us up, but also being honest with us um, about where we could grow, about the, their expectations, which were sky high. Um, and the beautiful thing about it, there wasn't this chasm between home and school. Um, they were very uh, tightly aligned with, uh, you know, how they looked at, um, you know, Black children in America, Black children in Philadelphia. Is... That what led you to to start the um, the Center for Black Educator Development. I mean that that kind of influence, that kind of teaching, and a mentoring and example that that then you wanted to be able to impart that. Yeah, you know what I, I would definitely say the seeds were placed there. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they didn't necessarily tell us what to do or what we would uh, do, um, but what we were raised on believing is that there were expectations that we would. Um, support our community, um, that we would, you know, um, support our people, um, that we would use education. And so, you know, I think eventually, you know, just going through life, I was on my way to law school. Um, I thought that, you know, um, fighting for for uh, for justice was going to be through the courts. Uh, and it was during that time that right after I graduated, I unfortunately got into an altercation and ended up being shot a couple of times and ended up in the hospital. And during that time when I was in the hospital, I was a recent college graduate. And matter of fact, this is like maybe five months after graduating college. And going through that experience, you know, in the hospital for a month, understanding like who shot me, but trying to understand like, you know, what was it that caused me to have a, you know, we're about the same age practically a year separated us. I was 20, he was 19. And I had a college degree, but he had not finished middle school. And so my initial thought was, okay, maybe I'll pause on law school and really work with youth who are, you know, maybe dropped out of school, maybe had easy access to guns, maybe, you know, um, enough rage to, you know, almost kill somebody over a football game. And I didn't make it through orientation. I ended up working at a place that was for children waiting to be adjudicated. Um, I did not finish orientation because I just thought this was not the right place for me. And they need great people there. You know, there are children there who are, you know, on suicide watch or who are um, accused of all types of crazy things. And there are some who are, shouldn't even be in there um, at all, um, you know, just because there were nonviolent crimes and, and so on and so forth, but they're placed in there for a lot because of a lot of uh racial injustices and and system incompetence uh but right at that time someone uh, reached out to me and said hey they're recruiting black men to teach and it was there that i i got a new set of mentors um and these were educators 
educators who knew about the art and science of teaching, how to lead a classroom or auditorium or a school full of full of children in in, uh, West Philadelphia, you know, mentors who had spent time understanding the connections between educational and racial justice. And so that became my new set of mentors. But what they did was, I think, in some ways, like really, you know, water and fertilize seeds that were already there. Um, but they helped to nurture and 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 to to train and and um, and develop in a way that eventually led me to create the Center for Black Educator Development. Um, I was a teacher and a principal for 26 years, and the you know that time was was just absolutely amazing. You know, all pretty much in the same general West Philly, Southwest Philadelphia area. And being able to serve in the communities, all neighborhood schools, so kids in the community attending there uh, was just a really profound experience for me. And what I received as a new teacher, then later as a new principal, is what we're trying to do at the at the Center um, for Black Educator Development to, as Mary Church Terrell, uh, one of those uh, Hall of Fame educators used to say, we lift as we climb. And at the center, that's exactly what we're trying to do. How do we lift as we climb? And what I recognize in that is that's the same thing that teachers were doing at Nathaniel Southside. That was the same thing my family was doing, the same thing that the community that uh, they surrounded us with were doing. They were lifting as they climbed. Um, and that is a, a big part of our orientation at the center. If we remember correctly, you talked about how you looked at education kind of as a form of activism. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you saw it that way. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, that that was one of the things that fueled me, um, continues to fuel me, is this idea that the the purest form of activism was teaching black children well. That's what sold me on this idea of teaching because, um, you know, people like Dr. Martin Ryder, who was able, we were able to recognize and give an award to um, uh, last month when he came to the Black Men Educators Convening, uh, which we were just honored to host. You know, I, I really wanted to point to let the, the audience and the participants understand how we're connected to other people's work and that we don't just stand on people's shoulders. We also lean on their shoulders um, as, as we continue to do this work. And so the idea of like activism is, is part of education, particularly educating, uh, you know, children from communities that have been historically marginalized that have systems and laws and policies specifically written, created, and uh, rapidly enforced, uh, you know, to privilege one group of people in America and to um, disadvantage and marginalize another group. And so to be able to educate them well, you have to understand the history, you have to understand the context, and and that is where the activism, you know, uh, comes into play. But it also means that you have to, you have to do it well, just being there as a, as a job and a transactional isn't activism. Um, understanding that, hey, you know what, if I'm going to do this well, that means, as Dr. Chris Imden talks about, I'm choosing to either do damage to the system or do damage to a child. And every time you choose um, to protect the child against the system, and that means that is a form of activism. Um, and so that's the only way that you know you can really achieve educational and racial justice together. Um, you know, some people try to separate them like oh, i'm going to pursue racial justice and they ignore education that's an error and the same way if you're trying to pursue educational justice and you ignore racial justice that's also a gross error you know it's really understanding the connection between the two that can uh lift up the activism the levels of activism necessary uh to provide both educational and racial justice simultaneously or at least work towards that with uh, with deep fervor and commitment. Seems to be that um, one of our biggest problems in, in in any society is the fact that we don't integrate um, some of those things that you're talking about, you know, with, with one another. That we kind of work in silos, and things are not collaborative. They're not, uh, you know, they're not involved. And uh, the fact that you're doing that, you know, it actually makes a lot of sense. And it, it, proud of you for that for understanding that and so would you be able to to give us some examples of some where in doing that 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 integration 
of education and, and racial justice, where you've seen some of your greatest successes, where you're, things you're most proud of, stories, examples that, uh, that uh, can serve as inspiration. Yeah, well, you know, James Baldwin said that, that you know, hope and inspiration is, is created every day. So, you know, there's so many, um, you know, so many stories, but they all they all really point to, to our youth. Um, you know, part of our, you know, at the Center for Black Educator Development, we have to our mission is to rebuild a, a national black teacher pipeline. In order to do that, there are three pillars that we stand this pipeline on. One is policy and advocacy. The other one is professional learning um, experiences. And then the third are pathways. And pathways are really our opportunity to invite uh, black youth into the profession, um, high school and college youth, career changers even. And, you know, to watch them teach, because part of it is it's a paid apprenticeship. So imagine a 10th grader saying, yes, I'm going to college. I'm interested in becoming a teacher. But I'm going to work on my skills and my mindset now by teaching first, second and third graders. And so for me, that's been part of, you know, I would say our, you know, uh, a high level of success as well as inspiration for us to draw on continuously is this intergenerational model um, that's built, again, built on the shoulders of others. You know, the, the Freedom School model, the Black Panther Liberation School model, as well as independent Black school movement, you know, very similar to the one I attended. And seeing how they have an intergenerational approach to teaching and learning. Uh, the relationship between learning and communities, uh, the partnership between communities and schools and how communities have schools and how that school operates should be a direct reflection on communities' aspirations and goals for the community, for the children, um, and, and so forth. And so for us to be able to capture some of that and be able to uh, embed that into our work, for me, is uh, you know not only the North Star that we have to uh, you know, work on, but it should be the the orientation of the entire organization as, as well as all of our our partners. And so for me, I'm you know, extremely inspired watching our, our youth um, engage or, you know, the other day I got a, you know, I was a principal for 16 years and uh, the last 11 was in a school that was in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And I got a text from from a from an alum was that, you know what, I'm thinking about becoming a teacher because I, I really like how I can pursue social justice by leading a classroom. And I was just like, wow, you know, like I, I was so inspired. You know, we have another, someone who's graduating in May who also reached out and said, hey, I'm thinking about, you know, becoming a teacher because I, I want to have an impact the way that my teachers had an impact on me. And, so you know, so those are, are really the stories. It's always the youth who are constantly thinking about how do I move this uh, this banner forward? Um, and our job is to make it easier for them to move it forward, but also give them the, the lessons uh, that we've learned um, from our own uh, journeys. I think for our listeners, it might be helpful, actually. I, I found this to be really helpful just to get a little bit more context with some, some statistics around Black, edu black ed educators. Mm -hmm. I know that you you cited this economic study in 2017 that said 94% of teachers in Pennsylvania are white. Mm -hmm. And when black students have two black elementary school teachers, they are 32% more likely to enroll in college. Mm -hmm. uh, how does increased teacher diversity help students, black students and others become better prepared for an increasingly complex world? Yeah. You know, and it's, it's a, uh as you said, not only good for black students, um, but good for all students, you know, um, just about every school I've gone to or district has something in their vision statement about preparing children for the world, you know, and then you see that they are actually not going to be prepared because they actually have no uh, diversity in their, um, in their uh, K-12 experience, you know, um, but in particular for black children, it's, it's important to recognize, again, back to how people are influenced in this, um, in society, and how they are um, taught to, you know, champion one perspective and ignore others um, is, is seeps into mindsets. And if it's in your mindset, that means it's going to be in your lesson plans. It's going to be in your unit map. It's going to be in how you build relationships, partnerships, how you ask students questions, how you write policies, um, what your, your disciplinary approach is. All of those things are influenced by mindset. 
And, you know, we recognize that there's research that shows that black children as early as three and four years old experiences their teachers racial biases. Imagine that three and four years old um, pre-K. They're already experiencing their teachers racial biases. Study after study after study confirms this. Well, it doesn't stop when they get to first grade or third grade or fifth grade. If anything, it gets a little worse because the child is older. They may be larger. Their voice may be uh, deepening. Um, so all of these experiences are, are already occurring. And then on top of that, you may have a curricula that is, you know, distinctly anti-Black. That's distinctly, you know, marginalized or erases other people's contributions, where this Black child who's already experiencing racial biases is also being force-fed a curricula that teaches them that you're, you or your people have never contributed anything to civilization. That if anything, at best, you're a stowaway, you know, or into this American dream or into civilization or, you know, whatever it is, like that you're not a an, an actor in this. Um, if anything, you are a, a leech <laughs> to our progress, to our civilization. Um, imagine a, a black child being fed this for 13 years. Um, but just as importantly, many of their teachers, 80% of who are white, not just in Pennsylvania, but across the country, they've also been force fed that. And they were force fed that as young as three and four years old as well. So even if I'm a friend and I'm, I'm black and my, my best friend, let's say, is, is white and we're in the same classroom and the teacher is constantly showing that the only thing that should be considered classical, for example, is Eastern European or white American literature, art and music. So the, even the word classical that has this level of, you know, that like honor and, and death, it's only... Uh, with uh, white faces. They're the only ones that have contributed. I visited music classes where the only posters up were white men with, with uh, powdered wigs in a classroom full of black and brown children. And so not only is he only teaching them how to read European music and consider this is the height of, of ingenuity, and the, the posters read that. And then the media also says this, and all right, like that. This is what the, the ecosystem looks like. And so for us, it is interrupting that nonsense. You know, um, both how that teacher was prepared had a lot of miscues. How the students are being taught had a lot of miscues. But imagine back to me and my best friend. If I'm constantly being ingesting uh, lessons like this throughout my K-12 and we're right next to each other. And my best friend who's white is constantly ingesting the opposite, right? And so we talk about windows and mirrors and he only gets a mirror of like, hey, this is what genius looked like. It only looks like Einstein. Classical is only, uh, you know, white contributions. Uh, civilization has only been built uh, by, you know, uh, Europeans and, and white Americans. At some point, even if they resist it, and if they don't resist it, then God bless, like how, you know, the trajectory and how that uh, changes their orientation. But at some point, it's almost like, hey, you're my friend, but you know what? There's also a, a, a unconscious bias that, that can't help but to be start being developed unless it's interrupted. Like there has to be some kind of interrogation, some cognitive dissonance to resist what is being taught to them incessantly both assertively as well as passive right we learn passively as well just by hearing things in the in the ecosystem and if that is constantly a, a drumbeat of anti-black anti-muslim anti-indigenous um, people anti-latino um that becomes the 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 uh you know symphony of a person's life and it directs their orientation directs their thinking directs their their habits and choices in a way that is can be severely undermining not only them but also their children's children right because these are also lessons that are going to be passed along um in their home not just in in school as an educator but in home as parents in communities um as policymakers and lawmakers as police officers and 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 doctors right and so there has to be this constant resistance um in a way to to address this so yes in the teaching Force is absolutely critical um, in the educator workforce. I shouldn't, we shouldn't even just say teachers. We're talking about 
policymakers, folks who are coaches, folks who do hiring and HR, people who choose the curricula to be, um, you know, for purchase and implementation. This entire ecosystem, um, by at large, needs to be, uh, you know, really uh, looked at deeply um, and radically changed in most instances. What are some of the challenges that you experience in trying to do that? Um, what what you're what what you're doing, what you're trying to do, is 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 so admirable and and vital, but we know that there's resistance. And can <laughs> yeah. can, can you? Would you talk about that a bit and what you run up against? What what is most uh, just most difficult in this journey? Yeah, yeah. you know, I, I think one of the um, you know one of the things that I think is is uh, pretty challenging is is there are a lot of people who underestimate how complex the issue is, how deep it goes, yeah. um, and they you know complex issues. Sometimes people want to put the most simplistic solution forward. Um, and sometimes it's really the, the laziest uh, position forward. Um, uh, there are others who, you know, underestimate how bad it is um, because they can't even fathom what the experience is of a child growing up in a system. Um, if, a, if a system privileges you in a certain way, then it's sometimes if you're not uh, vigilant and diligent about how you analyze that experience, you very well say like, no, it works fine because it worked fine for me. But if you're not interrogating, why did it work fine for you? How was it built? Who built it? What was their mindset? What was their relationship with other communities? Then you're gonna constantly grease the same gears that are crushing other people's aspirations. I think it's, we have to recognize, you know, um, what's the history of, a, of any institution? You know, I used to tell my students, if you're whatever discipline you pursue, also study the history of that discipline and try to understand how did it further racial justice or undermine racial justice. And we can't get away from that in America. Um, you know, we have to constantly do a deep analysis. So if it's city planning and you haven't looked at the history of it and, and how city planning was used to further marginalize people of color, then you're not going to be able to do your best work. You're not going to be able to uh, be the best person for society in that role because you're wholly ignoring how we got to certain points. And you'll attribute many of the things that you see to just black or brown pathology. You'll just say like, oh, these are these are people who are just, they don't care about education. And that's why, you know, this looks like that. Or they don't care about their neighborhoods. And that's why this looks like this. Or, or they don't know how to save money. And that's why this looks like. You'll constantly you know, um, position yourself to point the fingers at them and ignore a system that you're protecting. And it goes back to, right, like, who are you going to critique, the system or the person um, that is suffering from the system? You know, and I, I think, uh, and part of human, you know, all human beings have biases, but when biases are protected, reinforced, and promoted through policy and laws, um, funding streams and and politics, then it becomes cemented in a very peculiar way that's different than individual biases. It becomes an entire system that supports uh, uh, biases, and that is the most dangerous part of the the many of the institutions that we have in America. Earlier, you used this word, which I think mm -hmm. is an appropriate one about like being a symphony. And I know we've kind of latched onto that image recently as we're, we're in the process of crafting our next book and just thinking of this idea of a symphony not being a symphony if certain uh, instruments are not represented in, in the symphony. And I'd love for you just to talk a little bit more about what is what happens in certain populations when people are not represented well or underrepresented. Yeah, you know... Um... When I was a teacher, and, and to this day, I still, uh, you know, have these conversations with, with uh, you know, with our youth. I used to, as an English and history teacher, what I wanted them to do was constantly, whatever they read, whatever they saw, whatever they were, you know, um, pouring over, to really look at and under, and try to understand, have this critical thinking, um, critical analyses about anything. Um, 
And, you know, three of the questions that I wanted them to always ask throughout their lives, it wasn't just for this test or the end of this class period. It was like, you know, something I wanted them to bake into their their um, outlook and their, their worldview was whose perspective experiences and experiences were being centered and whose perspectives and experiences were missing. And if they could go through life making that one of their questions, one of their vetting systems, one of their, uh, you know, that internal mental dashboard, just like, wait a minute, I hear them saying this, but whose voice is not there right now and why? Um, I, I think that is part of, you know, um, having a homogenous group, you know, when you look at at America and like how policies are created, a lot of people are like, oh, that was a long time ago. And now it's just like, OK, but when exactly did it change? You know, when exactly did the policies change radically enough to address all of the issues that were that permeated throughout it um, beforehand? And if you don't have added perspective, then it's very easy to be, you know, have blinders on, um, you know, and particularly when you're in leadership positions, you know, part of the, I think, leadership as human beings, just like we have biases, we have blind spots. Right. And if we have blind spots, part of our job as leadership is to create a system, um, a system of trust, a system of feedback loops, a system of, of humility and, and reflective analyses. Uh, but part of that is to shrink our blind spots. And so if we don't have the diversity, we don't have diverse voices, experiences, backgrounds, experiences with the system that we may say that we just love, um, and we're not hearing, like, how did other people experience that? That means we're not shrinking our blind spots. If anything, we're growing them. And we're growing our blind spots and wielding power simultaneously. And that, I would say, is like, that is what leads to, you know, not just the, the mistakes, but arrogant um, mistakes. Like, wielding power arrogantly is means that you are really increasing, widening your blind spots and making them, uh, you know, uh, really permanent in the, in so many ways, right? Well, at least with the the outcome or the the impact of that widened blind spot means that's going to do more and more damage, right? Like imagine driving and having a wider blind spot than what we have, so we have we have no discipline to look and track and and see what else is happening, no, what other perspectives, right? Because that's part of what you're doing as you're driving. You're I see what other perspective is is happening. If we don't do that as we're developing policies and procedures, rules and regulations, creating systems, uh, creating forms of punishment, um, education, banking, city planning, all of that um, with a widened blind spot and racial biases on top of that is uh, you can see how this country continues to, um, you know, marginalize. And yeah, things have improved but they've improved at incremental levels like you know people of color have been let down lied to uh marginalized over and over and over again you know uh, just systemically but if we if we don't have the the wherewithal to even acknowledge the truth right this is the the dangers of having this anti-crt hysteria um you know uh not being able to say like oh no this was done and this is how we're going to rectify it they want to say, oh, it was done and it just disappeared, poof. And we know that that never, nothing ever disappears. It lingers, it, it fosters, it, it bands together and it morphs into something else, something even more sinister because it's not, it may not be as, as uh, visual, but it's definitely in the water and it's in the air. You know, it's definitely, as uh, Dr. Tatum says, it's in the smog that people breathe. Um, and as they're breathing, they're implementing policies and they're writing new ones. Um, and so without this uh, a, a community that's being that's trust has been built for them to speak their truth and humility to listen and hear and understand and work to change and work together, then it's just it's going to continue to perpetuate, um, you know, uh, through time. Thank you for listening to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. Wonders Found Thrift Shop is proud to be one of its sponsors. Wonders Found is an all-volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We support local missions, people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and children and youth outreaches. 
We also provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, wondersfound.org, or stop in to see what wonders you can find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. We're a listening organization. You had mentioned listening a little earlier in this conversation and how we believe it's so important, uh, you know, obviously what we hear through our ears, but to, but part of listening, uh, a huge part of listening as well is what we see with our eyes, what we don't see and what we notice that, that isn't happening or maybe is, I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's complex. How Mm -hmm. do you, uh, how would you say uh, listening can impact the, the work that you're doing? How, how would you like to, uh, for people to listen better? I guess I'm trying to, to, to listen better to, to your stories, to, you know, to the, the black experience or people of color, people who aren't of color. How can all of us listen better to those who are people who are of color? to understand more about the experiences and about the feelings and about the history. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's a great, that's a great question. I, I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I do think that it takes uh, a deep level of cultural humility, you know, one to, you know, to be able to do that, you know, um, I, I think part of listening is, is, uh, understanding like how we're showing up, you know, um, particularly if we're in positions of power or privilege, you know, um, you know, listening means that one, I'm, I'm seeking out uh, levels of being um, uncomfortable. And I, I think that's, you know, human nature, people want to be comfortable. They want to not feel challenged. They want, they want, um, they want yes men and women around them, you know, most of the time, you know, people, a lot of times they want that. They think that that's only reserved for like a, you know, super boss or a king. No, that's for a lot of people. Like, you know, if you're not uh, resisting that and then everyone, I've, I've heard this phrase so much. I love feedback. Like you really don't, <laughs> you really don't love feedback. You know, um, you like affirming feedback, but you don't like anything that makes you feel bad. Um, and so I, I think part of it is understanding that, um, have to depersonalize us, you know, as we're listening, you know, and some of it may be personal. Some of it may be things that, hey, you know what, this is what you did. Uh, but one of the, the ways that I used to uh, listen, um, you know, to my students and community, I would ask them very specific questions, not just wait for like, oh, I'm, I'm an open door. I'm I'm over. Anybody can come talk to me. I would go and pursue and, and ask and, and ask things that that were, you know, open ended. You know, like, what can I start doing? What can I stop doing? What can I continue doing? You know, not just, hey, how are you feeling? You know, good or bad or anything. Like, no, what, what should I start, stop, and continue doing? Because that would give me a level of feedback. And if I ask enough people, then I can see a pattern that my behavior may exhibit or how I may be showing up for people um, that I may need to sit back and reflect and, and, and think about, like, how do I change, right? You know, not listening I can give you examples of non-listening, right? You know, in, in the classroom, we would say, here's an example, here's a non-example of, of certain things. So a non-example is, you know, uh, another unarmed black person gets murdered and then a ton of white people say, hey, we're wearing safety pins on our, on our jackets to show you that we're safe people. Um, that's from not listening. <laughs> you know, that's coming up with, uh, that's being so far removed from um, people who are, who are, suffering from the brunt of you know uh, racial injustices and just coming up with their own thing and you know wearing a safety pin on the jacket you know like how exactly does that change the system is what we're what we're talking about you know uh, or hey we're not gonna you know uh, a black woman murdered unarmed and they say you know what we're not gonna call the master bedroom the master bedroom anymore Whenever we do house showings, we're just going to call it the, you know, the parent bedroom or the family. We're going to change master because we know that has connotations to enslavement. And so, but that in itself is what is going to make everything better. Like, yes, it does have, 
you know, uh, a history to enslavers. And that's not changing the reality of right now of me having fear when my, uh, you know, that some police officer with the, the entire uh, force of the police department to protect them will murder my child. That's a disconnect. That's a chasm. And that's going to grow distrust if you come to me and like, here's my plan and here's my theory of action uh, to address racial injustice. We just need to add a little, sprinkle a little, you know, X, Y, Z on top of this problem, but we're not going to dig into the problem. Um, you know, for me, that's that's a part of like what listening is. Listening means that you are silent and listening, you know, um, that you are in positions to hear other people's back to voices, perspectives and experiences. The less you're exposed to that, and not, and I don't mean exposed where you're hearing and you're able to push back, challenge, disagree with, no, no, no. You're exposed and you are just listening, sitting with it and pushing yourself to really try to see from other people's perspectives, experiences and hear their voices um, and not just rush to defend a system that, that supported you and ignoring how it's crushing someone else. It's like it's like it's like hitting somebody with a car, and the person, the aggrieved person, complaining about the the car or the speed limit, and you're like, it's always worked fine for me. It's always got me exactly where I wanted to go. Like I don't understand why you're complaining. I don't understand why you're so angry, right? Like that's the level of of ignorance that that permeates our society. Such a good point. I mean, listening uh, by nature. Sh- if we're, if we're truly listening well, it might make us uncomfortable, the things that we hear. And we would probably argue that that's the mark of a good listener, uh, is that we can be silent when we hear uncomfortable things, things that make us kind of on edge. Yeah, and, and I think sometimes it just, you know, makes us uncomfortable and still being able to wrestle with it to think like, okay, like, what can I do differently? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and, and every time I listen doesn't mean that I'm going to agree or I might even act on everything that I've, I've heard. So I have to sift through it. Right. But if I see a pattern. Right. And I'm listening to not just, oh, this is my favorite person. I'm going to listen. Listen to multiple people, particularly people who I know we have differences. Right. Like sometimes that's the, the best lessons we can we can learn from. You know, uh, one of my mentors, you know, she's my one of my instructional coaches. And later she became my principal coach. She she used to say, like, I would, she would talk to someone on staff who she knew this person disagreed with every single suggestion that this uh the principal had. This is Miss Savior. And Savior said, like, every time, you know, and at first she would, you know, just be offended, like, this woman is so negative. No matter what I say, I'd say tomorrow's Tuesday. She would be like, Yeah, but it's really the day after Monday. You know, she was like, or the day before Wednesday. She would just, just constantly have something. And she said initially she just would balk and just like, I'm just going to shut her out and ignore her. But then at one point she came to the realization, you know, she's like, you know what? If I actually go to her first and get all her points, it actually make my plan even stronger. And that's what she started doing. She started going to this. This person, because she was being engaged differently, became even less negative. And still would be able to say like, hey, here's how this improves. But without the, you know, without the the frustration. And so she said, like, that became just like her her plan. So let's call the, the woman Samantha. She was like, yeah, so my son, this became part of her work style is to seek out who might have a different perspective, who might have a different experience, uh, whose voice might I, you know, naturally try to avoid just because it doesn't, you know, it's it's not the the setting or, you know, they may not be, you know, they don't say it how I would say it. And she said, you know what, she actually became an even better leader um, and more, way more buy-in from everybody because of how she approached that one thing. Um, and this is, this is a woman who's coming up with like great ideas to like really change the school. Imagine if we listen to people who are actually suffering generationally from schools and systems and other institutions, you know, um, in our society. We know that our time's probably winding down. Um, maybe a 
question that I know I'd like to ask just is what, what is the pandemic kind of confirmed for you? Some things that you've been working on for, for decades and now it's maybe been brought, been brought to light more, uh, over the last couple of years. Yeah. You know, I, I think it, you know, one, it, it exacerbated a lot of the, the issues that we were already seeing. You know, we knew that, um, in communities of color, um, poor communities, the pandemic just, you know, just laid on like how, you know, intense life is, um, how, how much injustice permeates life, um, how privilege can, can often, um, you know, elevate above even a pandemic in, in certain ways, right? You know, so even when we look at, you know, uh, poverty levels and, but who had to end up outside of like, you know, um, doctors and things like that, there were other folks who didn't have, and they were usually lower wage, lower skill uh, workers who still had to be in the front line, um, who still had to be, you know, out and exposed where other people could say, oh yeah, I'm doing uh, virtual. My job allows me, affords me to do virtual. So I'm going to go to Mexico and, and, and work from there, you know, um, like the level of privilege, you know, the amount of people who I heard were going to Europe and because they could uh, do their job virtually. Right. And then there were other people and, you know, just to be disconnected, not to say that that person can change, you know, the worker that has to go and that they, you know, have no babysitter, daycares are shut down, but they won't be able to work like all those things, but to, to have a hard heartedness about, understanding um, those type of things. Um, I think schools are another example, you know, the number of schools that had to shut down and then couldn't reopen, not because necessarily that they couldn't reopen um, because students or families weren't, but just because the ventilation system that families had been saying forever were causing um, asthmatic conditions that were um, severely unhealthy the schools couldn't reopen because they could not fix that, um, you know, fast enough, right? And so it was just like, oh, you can you can change. Now we're going to recognize that ventilation is important. Where there are people of communities who, you know, a community of color in poor and impoverished neighborhoods who are saying like, oh, this the the physical plant, the physical conditions of this building is terrible, and it's been terrible. But it's been it landed on deaf ears because it didn't impact other people, and they they would build new buildings, um, you know, across the street from places like Philadelphia in the suburbs, every ten years, just because they're like, hey, this isn't good enough anymore. Um, but in Philadelphia, those schools, oh yeah, it's okay that that building is a hundred years old. It's okay that it has asbestos and lead, and um, and poor ventilation, and the windows uh, don't open. All that is fine um, because there's, you you know, it, we're we're taught our children are taught that you deserve the educational experience that your parents can afford. That's what our children are taught, in so many ways. You deserve the educational experience that your parents can afford, whether they can afford to go live in a in a wealthier neighborhood, whether they can afford to pay for private school, whether they can afford to to. Uh, move here, they, like any of that is, is bound to what you're, and if your parents can't afford it, then you don't deserve it. You don't deserve to be in a, a vermin-free, lead-free, asbestos-free, um, you know, school. You don't deserve to be in a school with low expectations. Um, you don't deserve to be in a, in a building that actually has windows that let sunlight in. All, all of those things are were lifted up again, once again, you know, through the pandemic. And we saw that with the disparities of people who were being Im impacted, um, you know, health-wise. Um, you know, one of my one of my schoolmates, classmates, when I was younger at the elementary school, has talked about, you know, she's a doctor and she recognized that in Philadelphia in the black neighborhoods, they were not getting service. Um, they were not getting supported. So she started a black doctors consortium just to provide support um, and, it was interesting to watch the, this arc of her experience as someone trying to lead and serve in her community. Um, at one point, this this young white man who attended uh, one of the universities, I believe Drexel, was not a doctor, ended up getting a contract with the city to distribute, you know, um, uh, supplies, either the vaccination or the test. Uh, I don't quite remember. 
Now, this is a, this was a young man who had no medical experience. But people who who like Dr. Eli Stanford, the actual doctor, uh, was having trouble getting the city to act. And you know, to me, the, the, this was just another another example. But what the pandemic again was trying to teach us, like, look at this, like, just deep level of of incompetence fueled by racial biases, fueled by white privilege. You know, where this. Uh, non-medical student can get a contract in the medicinal field and uh, actually in uh, an acclaimed renowned black doctor can't get the same level of traction right like that that was an example so with all the health disparities with all the educational impact with all the the food and the jobs and all those things to me that was you know, that was the example for me that show continue to hold up a mirror to places like Philadelphia, Philadelphia government. Again, not just individuals, systems to say, look at look at this. This is extremely problematic. Sharif, we want to thank you. Yeah, we want to thank you for this conversation, for taking the time. We want to thank you for the work that you're doing. We want to thank you for the challenges that you give, the questions that you raise, the, um, you know, the, the, the things that you are doing and teaching and, and leading about to help change this institutionally and in every other way. So um, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it very much. And there's, there's just so much more we could talk about. And you, you've raised some extremely important and excellent points. And we're very grateful for that. And again, thank you. No, my, my pleasure. I think, you know, um, thanks for, one, thanks for having me. But uh, two, thanks for continuing these type of conversations. Um, you, you mentioned questioning. I, I think that is one of the most important things we could do is, is question. Um, Dr. Ali Michael, um, you know, I'm really grateful for her work. One of the things that she talks about, she's a white woman from Pittsburgh area, lives in, in Philly now. Um, and she does a lot of, you know, professional development and training uh, for educators, particularly, uh, and not just educators, but for white people to go through how, you know, their their journey and their identity and, and how they can, you know, um, be better community members, leaders, et cetera, particularly around this issue of race. Uh, and racial justice. And one of the things that she she really talks about is how she started questioning, how did I learn this? When did I learn it? Where did I learn it? How did I learn this? You know, she was talking about like her racial biases and just understanding like, hey, you know what? As a, once I started doing that, then things started opening up, right? But it was back to questioning, but also having the culture of humility to question, to be uncomfortable with the answers. Um, and then constantly be, being committed to, you know, seeking more, you know. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I look at your program as, as uh, another example of that. So thanks again for, for having me. It's been her pleasure. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thanks again for joining us on today's program. We just really loved this episode because it made us a bit uncomfortable. And we say that in all seriousness because it, whenever we're uncomfortable, we're learning something new, uh, something that maybe we need to hear again and again, something that's reinforced. I know after we stopped recording, Sharif just said, I hope what I shared today just connects with your audience. And we say here at the Someone to Tell To podcast, our job is just to simply create a space for people to tell their stories. And see, so he was just telling his story today. So we hope that you learned something new uh, as we did today. You know, as, as a listening organization, it's so important for us to, to listen, as, as we mentioned in the, in the program, to, to listen to not just what is being said, but what is not being said, what is not being shared. It's, it's also to, to look, to notice, um, you know, you look with our eyes and, and feel with our, with our hearts and our spirits um, and our emotions uh, to what is around us or what is not around us. And this really has been a challenge for, for the, especially those of us who are not persons of color, who have historically been in positions, um, you know, our, 
you know, our, our community and ancestry has come from often a position of dominance, mm-hmm. um, which ne- hasn't always been always been good, and it's not always helped. And to for those of us who who have been born into that, I think it's just really is significant for us to be able to listen and to notice um, for those who are different from us to understand understand their perspectives a little bit more and appreciate them and value them a lot more uh, for what they what they have to offer to this world so we thank you mm-hmm. thank you all for um, again joining with us today we're always grateful for it and um, you know if you if you like these podcasts if they provide some resonance for you some, some you know cause you to think uh, cause you to um, you know, to learn and feel more. Uh, we, um, we hope that you will support us. You can um, go to, to Patreon, which uh, is a, is a, uh, are onto our website, someone to tell it to, and, and just donate uh, to support these, these efforts and this work that we do to help educate and inspire um, people in, in the art and the science of listening listening better every day so again thank you until we listen again